Hello and welcome to this edition of the DMZ America podcast, dropping another pod on you. It is Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. I'm Scott Stannis coming to you from the crazy right. And I'm Ted Rawl coming to you way over on the left. We are kooky, crazy guys. <laughs> are we really? Not are really. really? Yeah. I really don't think we are, but... Um, it's kind of only it's all well, you know, it's it, we're we're political cartoonists. And as a group, when you when you meet us, you know, I don't know that we'll ever have a, a an in-person gathering again, perhaps. Probably not. But if we ever did, you would just see these are a bunch of guys who look like schlumps at the golf course. Uh, you know, it's and they are guys pretty much all except for like four. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And but, white. And um, yeah, and we old. All, we are now in use. Everyone's to over 50. I think it's safe to say. I'm the kid. I'm 58. I'm like the young child. <laughs> You're the kid. They called him the kid. <laughs> of course, they were themselves 106. As he came in on his little rascal. <laughs> hey, well, I guess we should talk about some issues or something. I don't know. Maybe uh, you um, think. Okay. Anything yeah, going on? Nah, not much. Not a hell of a lot. Um, <laughs> oh, wait, the spending bill. The Democratic spending bill is uh, eking towards compromise. It's, uh, for instance, the uh, compromise from compromise from compromise to compromise. When we're going to talk about that, I think that's one of the I think that now I see the, the strategy. There really is a strategy here. Um, but the family leave portion of it has got been whittled down from 12 weeks to four weeks. You've got other elements of it. I mean, you Ted raises an interesting question. Should single, what about single workers? Should they get time off? Um, who, who pays for it? All this stuff. Uh, Ted and I don't agree on this, um, nor should we. <laughs> and so well, maybe we should, but we don't. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, well, this, this makes you, I know this makes your teeth itch because originally we were talking about $3.5 trillion yeah. in uh, supplemental spending that had not previously been anticipated. Which, so by the way, piggybacks on the infrastructure bill, which is one and a half trillion dollars. Just, you know, a trillion right. so here, a trillion there. It, eventually, it's real money. Who said that? Was that William Proxmire who said that or someone I, else? Let's say yes, because I liked William Proxmire. He came to speak to my high school. Did he? When I was in high school, obviously. Yeah, and he yeah. stayed for hours. It was so oh, he wasn't sweet. like he wasn't like one of those creepy guys, was he? Like hanging out in the boys' room too much? No, I don't. Not that I. Not that he didn't hit on me, which doesn't. No one no. did, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> shut in up. That sense, you were shut like up, everybody Paul. else. Okay, but I thought it was one of the more interesting moments because here's a guy, you know, well-regarded U.S. senator, and he was hanging out with high school students and just sitting in the auditorium taking questions. That's and- very cool. Hey, one of your heroes, I think one of your heroes, uh, John Anderson, came to. Uh, my uh, yeah. high school. You didn't like John Anderson. I respected him. Independent presidential candidate. No, because he was he was he thought that the um, he thought Ronald Reagan was too far to the right. And well, uh, Lord knows that's true. No, and, oh God, he was, you would you would beg for someone like Ronald Reagan on the ticket now. Well, that's true. He would be a, a liberal Democrat today. And Richard <laughs> Nixon is basically Mao Zedong. Um, <laughs> that's why he met with him. That, you know, that's the thing is you, you conservatives keep winning and it's, it's really annoying. Um, yeah, I know, you know that's, and that's the problem. Well, you got, go ahead. Go ahead. You go ahead. No, you no, go I was ahead. just going to say, I mean, like, we're, you know, <laughs> like uh, those of us on the left are winning the woke stakes, but you guys are winning. <laughs> <all of> the, 
it's just, but we're but you guys are winning all the policy stuff you know in the like, elections i mean let's be yeah. clear uh, yeah, that's true. Probably the next ones too. So let's get um, back to the Democratic spending bill. <laughs> Obviously, we are really looking forward to speaking about this because it's the most exciting. I mean, it is actually. Look, let's get serious, Scott. It, this is yeah. one of the most uh, ambitious um, uh, Democratic uh, spending initiatives. Uh, in our lifetimes, not since uh, the Great Society under LBJ has the Democratic Party tried to move the needle so much on domestic policy. Um, not since the mid 1960s have we seen anything so ambitious. There hasn't been a significant anti-poverty proposal put forth by any Democratic administration uh, st- since LBJ. I mean, Jimmy Carter didn't yeah. put one forward, and there hasn't been one ever since. So this is. You know, they really are aiming for, I'm not going to say necessarily high, but they're aiming for a lot. And uh, so you were going to say about, I mean, we talked about this before offline, as they say, but you think that there's method to the madness. I mean, to a lot of those of us on the uh, progressive left, we look at this and we say, okay, this is going to look disappointing. You start, you told us that for sure, no matter what, you were going to give us $3.5 trillion in new social welfare spending. And now we're down to, we were thinking, okay, okay, maybe we'll settle for 2.5. Well, maybe we'll settle for two. And now there's a question of whether we're even going to be in the T-zone anymore. And we're going to be down into mere hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, So, and, and, you know, I mean, the thing is, it's like, uh, you're supposed to under-promise, over-deliver. Democrats are definitely violating that rule. They said, we're going to deliver a hell of a lot. And they're certainly going to deliver something, but not... Uh, nearly as much as they had claimed, that feels like a, a loss to a lot of progressives. It does and it shouldn't. I mean, this is how th- how the game used to be played many years ago. Less so. I mean, people forget, you know, well, back in the day, well, back in the day, Democrats had 60 plus seats in the Senate and had an overwhelming majority in the House. Uh, clearly, you also had yellow dog Democrats or blue dog Democrats, whatever color dog they were at the time. But you, you, for the most part, you had one party rule in both places, so you didn't have to compromise. But you had some compromise, some compromises. And this is, I think, the long, and I maybe I could be dead ass wrong, Ted. I could be just wrong, but I don't think I am because of who's proposing. I don't think you're wrong either. Go, go ahead. And this is the Biden administration that is going to go and say, we want $3 trillion in spending, compromise, 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 deal, barter. And by the time you're done, you have $1.5 trillion. Well, it's still a crap ton of money. And if you'd started at $1.5, you would have ended up somewhere at $750, like 750 billion, million, which is right. So you started it. Th- so, but the, the thing is, yeah, I mean, it does. I think you're probably right. Um, you know, I think this is kind of the problem when you get a uh, former U.S. Senator Wheeler Dealer as president. Uh, you know, they, they just they can't leave their old habits behind. Uh, but there, he's having a hard time framing this for the public. His polls are falling through the floor. Uh, you know, his polls are now yeah. looking positively Trumpian. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, if the election were at least one poll that I saw found that if the election were held today, a rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, Donald Trump very well might win. Oh, I think there's no doubt. I, I really don't. I think that the Republicans are going to take over the House and Senate. The Democrats have done an absolutely wretched job at selling this project this this thing well no one knows what's in it it's like support support this bill uh okay uh what am i supporting yes support this bill well it reminds me a lot 
the hell out of this amazing bill that you're going to just love. It reminds me a lot of Pelosi when she during uh, you know the Affordable Care Act. We'll know what's in it when we pass it. It's like, wait, what? You know, well, we fell what, for this once. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, of course, it's like the USA Patriot Act. You know, uh, yeah, nobody, well, no, I mean, nobody right. read it before they signed it, before you're, they voted for it. You're absolutely right. So, so the problem with this is we don't know exactly what's in it going forward. There's some wacky stuff, at least for you know, if you you're trying to sell this to middle America, let's say you're trying to sell this to to red states, and you, you, what's in it? We don't know. We have some inkling of stuff. You know, you're, you're not going to be able to drive your car anymore. Well, I mean, I think I mean, fam- okay, so family leave appears to be on the chopping block due to um, particularly Kirsten Cinema and to a lesser extent uh, Joe Manchin and. Um, the Congress had wanted uh, to pass a 12-week plan. And I wanted I was curious what you thought about this. We're now down to four weeks of paid family leave and medical leave. Um, and I kind of have some reservations about, I mean, really I, I, about not the idea of family leave. I think um, I, I think more Americans are one of the most overworked people in the world. Um, we have the shortest vacations in the world. We we work the longest hours. American workers need a break, no question. But I just wonder, like, what is it about having a kid that entitles you to more time off? And I have a kid, but what entitles you to have more time off than someone who's um, a single a single person? I mean, well, because I think shouldn't they get time off too? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a valid point. I don't think you should have. I don't think you should mandate this. Let me be very clear on this. I think that mandating this is is absurd and well that's what the, that's what the proposal i mean look okay scott you're not going to mandate it look i mean you know the the republic's been around for over 220 years and obviously employers have not gotten around to offering it voluntarily right so but, and we're seeing but we're also seeing now ted what i think is this quantum shift in the workforce you know you and i both are at some respect and read Marx, his analysis of the cost of labor and, you know, and now we're going to get into economics, which is really good podcasting. People love math, <laughs> <laughs> but, but Don't seriously, tune away to a sex podcast. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. No, but in all seriousness, the, the idea of the cost of labor, now it's coming back. I mean, we had labor movements, obviously the twenties, the thirties, uh, the 40s and the, the 50s, and then that got diminished. It got eroded significantly. I think we're going to see that come back. Now, when that we'll comes see about back, that. I'm not so optimistic. I am. I think that we're going to have, and the way economies work is that you know supply and demand. There's a low supply of labor, and the fact is, Ted, labor now is telling management, "Go screw yourself. You're not going no, to well, be able well, to abuse me anymore." Yeah, labor, but not organized labor. I mean, uh, I, I was going to say, you know, well, you know, you Republicans screwed up labor, but that's not really true. I mean, Democrats really played an equal role in that. I mean, oh yeah, uh, no question with with NAFTA and. Uh, Harry Truman with the Taft-Hartley Act, which pretty much like drove a, a stake through unionism in many ways. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I do. But I, I mean, getting back to the to the Democrats bill here, I mean, I think there's a there's a structural issue here, which is, you know, on health care. It, you know, I'm sympathetic to employers. I don't think they should have to pay for it. I think that's something that should the government should be in charge of. But when it comes to family leave or paid leave, just let's just say more vacation, seems to me like employers ought to be paying for that. I don't know why federal tax dollars should be subsidizing employee benefits. Well, because 
America subsidizes business. I mean, food stamps subsidize the low wages that Walmart pay, paid for years. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, that sucks. That's, but that's, that's, that's why I don't like government sticking its nose in this. So, I mean, if they don't, you shouldn't be putting the money towards it, right? It's still a crap ton of money. We're still talking, even if it's whittled down to one and a half trillion dollars, couple that with the infrastructure bill, it's still three trillion dollar additional dollars being spent and that's money being taken away well, it's not going to be generation. i mean we're look i mean scott at this point we're seriously down forget it forget it the 3.5 don't even talk about that that that's ain't happening uh we're looking at one trillion maybe at this point so we should be talking about one trillion maybe because that's yeah. reality that's the real world here and that's still and, too much ted and the well i mean it, it's not enough when you consider that they're getting rid of the planet <laughs> climate change I mean, literally, they they have decided to die. We don't. We already we have this um, this big uh, climate summit coming up, uh, and all sorts of studies show that there is no way that the U.S. or any other Western country is going to hit its targets in any kind of credible way. Right. And and then so here we are taking away, uh, we're, you know, what little thing, a few things we had proposed. I mean. You know, we were trying to get rid of coal and migrate to other like wind energy or solar, which is absurd. Well, which I I personally I'm this might shock you because this is not a traditional left wing perspective, at least for people from a certain generation from the 70s and 80s from the no nukes era. But I think nuclear power is something that uh, is certainly much cleaner. And you know why you think that? I know why you think that because it's true. Because it's French. The French did something. The French yeah. did something very smart. They decided years ago that they were going to make not just like Americans, because Americans must be big, must have huge truck, must have big thing, <laughs> nuclear big plant, burger. not just charge, must be able to electrify entire region. And the French went, you know what works better is if you have smaller plants, they're manageable. If they break, there's less, obviously less uh, fuel that you only lose fuel. one province at a time. Yeah, well, you know, let's face it, it's our dash. Who cares? Uh, sorry for those of our French listeners. I'm sorry. But they they structured, I think that's in all seriousness, because you and I are both French and Frenchophiles and Francophiles, frankly. Yeah, yeah that's kind of clever. Um, their system, their, their electrical grid is based on a series of small nuclear plants. They're, it's clean. It's renewable. Yeah, to my to my knowledge, I mean, I could be wrong about this. I'd have to look into this, and, and and there might be a listener who could correct us on this. But to my knowledge, France has had a very high, a very uh, good safety record yeah. on their nuke program. And um, but like you know this, but our climate, but we're now going to something really lame, which is uh, just tax incentives for individuals and for businesses to uh, you know to improve their fuel efficiency. Uh, you know, hey, put in uh, solar panels, uh, you know, it'll cost you $30,000 and the state will send you back $6,000 and yay. I mean, let's get real here. I mean, even if this was a good idea and I'm not sure. So I don't think solar is all that in much many parts of the country. I used to live in the middle of the woods. That wasn't going to help me. You know, um, <laughs> it's like uh, and and not to mention there's a serious there are serious ecological issues with solar panels because they have all sorts of. Uh, you know, t- uh, heavy metals and toxic chemicals. So when you just disposing of them is a serious pain in the ass. But what are you going to do? I mean, it's like uh, now we're going we're going to a uh, t- we're we're going to like these incentives that just don't really work. No, so- they don't, and that's the problem, Ted. And that's when government 
Don't let government get involved in the economy because it doesn't know what the hell it's doing. Well, okay, Scott, then what, okay, then what's your solution here? My solution is- We only have a few minutes left in this segment. Super, super fast. Here in Alabama, where I live, the Alabama- Alabama Power, which is a Southern company, it's exactly what it sounds like, provides electricity for the state, has passed legislation that if I put, I want to go, go off the grid. I want to be a self-sustaining household. And it's sunny enough here. There's enough rainwater here. I could be, oh, my house alone, which is not palatial, could be self-sustaining. If I put solar panels on my house, A, I don't get a tax credit. B, Alabama Power still insists I give them money. Even though the electricity I don't use gets sent back to the grid, which they can then turn around and sell. Now, this that's is only government. True, be- that's only true in Alabama, right? So, anyway, no, there's so a lot your, of states where. Okay, this but would, what's your? So, but that's because that's not true in New York at all. For example, uh, you would get uh, you wouldn't have a bill, and you'd get paid by the by the utility for any power right. that you sent back, and you get credits. You shouldn't get credit. I mean, just just the, the just the idea that if you put. Solar panels on the top of the building you live in, you, you live in Manhattan. Um, you guys in that collectively in that building could s- s- probably buy 5% of the electricity you're burning now from the electric company and the rest would be from this. Okay, that's your incentive. You don't need an incentive. Your incentive is it saves you a crap ton of money and you don't have to pay bills to a corrupt monopoly. Well, the problem is the capital outlay, as it always is. So, I mean, that's that's where government gets involved in the economy, right? I mean, the uh, the government can make big things happen in a way that, uh, you know, individuals and even a lot of fairly medium sized businesses can't. Um, you know, they also, have the money. And the problem with government mandating things like this is it also supersedes the idea that they don't know what's in the pipeline, they don't know what's in the future. Well, that's true, but but nothing has been. Look, let's be serious, though. I mean, there is the the planet is on is burning up. Uh, You know, it is, you know, two days ago here in New York City, it was 80 degrees. It's late October. Um, It should be snowing sometimes in late October. I mean, this is crazy. Um, And what what, you know, like until the 1970s and the mod- the birth of the modern environmental movement, there was no move afoot by American industry to do anything but pump more toxins into the air. I mean, so if it's not coming from politics and from the government, you know, where's it going to come from? I think that outrage from the people. Here's the thing. What's the, I mean, I always make this point when we talk about this issue. What's the number one thing your mom taught you? One is clean up your mess. If we, all we have to do. Well, nobody than- did though. They didn't because, well, yeah, I mean, there were enforcement things, but then we also, stay with me here, kids, government allowed loopholes that were written by these, the industrialists to allow them not to have to pay. Or there just weren't any rules. I mean, people, you know, I mean, uh, uh, companies would just, uh, you know, dump stuff into the groundwater and then just close up shop and open up under a new corporate name, you know? Well, we were right. And bankruptcy laws are such that, oh, I want to sue Dow for killing a thousand, you know, tens of thousands of people in India. Oh, wait, in India, we declare bankruptcy. We're no longer a company. And so you know, that's again, government getting involved in something that should have organically been, you and I would probably even agree organically should have just happened. You sue the bastards who killed my, you know, my parents. And they are then fiscally responsible. Right. So I'm still not hearing a solution, Scott. 
<laughs> I mean, like, what would you do? Like, I know what, what should not happen, but what should happen? I think, okay, first and foremost, and then we got to uh, bail out of this segment before, because we were talking about the spending bill, and now we're on this. Um, you have to organically say, or not organically say, but you have to um, transparency and real-time, real reporting for polluters. Something as simple as that. There's a factory down the road. Guess how much crap they pumped into the air today? I can't tell you that. You couldn't tell me that. Okay, but but, okay so but that, so two 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 uh, retorts to that. That's a government agency that has to monitor that and enforce that and impose penalties if they fail to, to comply. And number two, what you know? I mean, what if they don't? There has to be teeth, right? I mean, there has to be. You know, it's like it's, and also it's like, who's going to hold them accountable? I mean, what, you know, so you live down the street and you're pissed. Yeah, you, know, you can't just go and throw rocks at the CEO when he pulls. No, away. but that's he doesn't even civil, live there. That's where the civil courts come in. So um, I don't we didn't really convince the other guy. No, I will, no, I will. I will. I will get you. I will <laughs> so get are, you, you are, are you declaring this uh, this a draw or? Yeah, I think so. What do you think? I think it's maybe a draw, but right. yeah, I don't all know. Right. I kind of think I, I feel like I won that one, but I, you may, but, well, you may have, that's up to, that's up to the people to decide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or I'm hoping we could assign it to a government agency. So when we come back, we're going to support Brandon. <laughs> of course. Let's go, Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. I'm Ted Rall here with Scott Stannis. And now let's talk about Let's Go Brandon. Uh, if you've been missing this somewhat siloed story, uh, I believe it starts at a uh, NASCAR race, yes. if I'm not yep. mistaken, uh, where uh, the uh, apparently there has been uh, the practice of chants going up uh, spontaneously at these NASCAR events where people say F Joe, uh, F Joe Biden very loudly. Uh, an NBC sportscaster uh, had this going on in the background, and we don't know why she did this, whether she was simply a fan of Joe Biden or perhaps trying to uh, protect her network from violating FCC regulations yeah, against cursing on the air. Uh, perhaps both, perhaps neither. But uh, she quickly on her feet spun this. And uh, unless she perhaps had poor hearing uh, and said, look, they're saying, let's go, Brandon, the name of the race car driver who had just won uh, that particular race. And uh, so, you know, there's some there's some broader sociological, sociopolitical implications to this story that obviously we should get into. Um, I think you know, we we talked about this in preparation uh, for this segment, and so it's just sort of in general. And I was interested because you you know you said that this was um, it, you were dismayed by the, the the thought that America was getting coarser, and I kind of wanted to uh, you know just explore that a bit because I think it's I think it's interesting. I think there are a lot of people who feel like you. Um, I don't, and I can get into really. That, let's, okay. I wanted to hear your position. Yeah, yeah. No, there's no question that we're getting coarser. Let me. Um, this is allegory. This is an analogy, and so it's. it's but I think definitely you can. Does it matter? Are we getting coarser? And if so, does it matter? I think it matters a lot. Um, but our, first, are we getting coarser? Really? Oh yeah, no question. I was. Um, I, I was. I was talking to you the other night. I. I get this. 
it's a long story. It's called Wish. You may, have, may or may not have heard of it. It's some kind of Chinese company that if you order something, it takes seven weeks to get it. And, but it's really cheap. And I actually order uh, solar lights from my backyard from this company. And so they, of course, because I ordered one thing, I now get 30 emails a day trying to sell me something. One time is flags. And I love flags. I collect flags. I, I, I'm part of the North American Vexiology Society. And so, you know, I love flags. So I thought, oh, I'll click on this and see what they have to offer. Yeah, the, uh, Scott's backyard is, uh, looks kind of like the front of the United Nations. There, <laughs> there are many, there are many flagpoles. How many flagpoles do you have? Well, I only have one flagpole, but we have, I thought uh, there, you had- I, think no, I want more. Did I, I hallucinate that? You were, yeah, you were kind of acting weird that day. <laughs> well, no, then, if, then I would have not been hallucinating. That day. <laughs> no, I want more than one. But every day I put up a different, like, let's say it's, um, you know, Independence Day in Aswani. Uh, I'll put up the Aswani flag. Let's say it's, um, you know, some kind of like Constitution Day in Djibouti. I'll put up the Djibouti flag. Don't worry. I'm still working on getting you that Taliban flag, by the way. Oh, I would love that. That would be so yeah. cool. Anyway. I, have an, I have an OG one, but it's in my storage unit. I'll get it for you. Oh, cool. Anyway, so so I click on the flag thing, and Ted, every single one of these flags is a pro-Trump, and they say, F, F your feelings, um, F Biden, Trump won. I'm just going to, and you would put this, and I'm driving around here in Alabama, which is clearly, you know, a very red, very Trump state, and you see these They don't flags. get any Trump here, yeah. And you're talking about these people who like always, I mean, the, I've seen these flags in New York state too, by the way. You do. Oh yeah. If you go upstate, you'll see them mm-hmm. yeah, as soon as you cross the Westchester uh, border. Yeah. And it's just so disgusting. I'm sorry. Just having an F-bomb there where kids go by where, you know, because children never hear the F-bomb. Well, they hear it all over the place now. And that's the problem. My father, frankly, my father knew three words and two of them were F right. Um, it was when Janine came over for the first time, her family, who does not curse at all, Janine's jaw. Wait, despite like, being from, isn't she Sicilian? Well, her mother is so, but yeah, but also very born again. I thought cursing was kind of, cursing was kind of, you know. No, they just, there. they curse your name and they kill you, but they're going to do it in very nice language. In a polite way. Yes. Over, over, over a nice Cabernet Sauvignon. Well, they're slicing your throat. The pinky will be out. It's very classy. Very classy. Anyway, so so I, I, my point, which is taking me forever to make, is that just the fact that every one of these flags was, you know, had the f bomb on it in some guise or another. Um, I, it's and this it maybe, brought it home. It brought it home for you. It may I be mean, generational. I mean, this may be generational. Tarant- you're saying it's the Tarantinoization of America. Yes. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, remember when you first saw Pulp Fiction and all, and you just were just aghast at the language. I think they even had an R rating. Well, it was also very violent, but <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, yeah. I, I think it, I don't think the F bombs are what got it. It's our rating. You don't you know? think so? Yeah, well, I don't know. We could go back and check. Of course, if only there was a device that could answer this question for us. If only, if only, I guess my point is, I, as we don't think it, look, I mean, seriously, like, so maybe like these clowns are, are driving around with their flags on the back of their pickup trucks oh, looking like ISIS. But they're, but they're, but you know, honestly, what is more like, I mean, it's true. They drive the same cars. It's true. You're, you're right. I'm not, I'm just, it never struck me until you just said it. But, but hey, those, they have a lot in common, you know, but I, I was, I don't get like how it is that, you know, that's more, how's that worse from, you know, like, look, 
not to be too facile about it, but a hundred years ago, lynchings were not that uncommon. And, you know, we don't do that anymore. Uh, you know, the, I guess the cops do that in prisons, but it's like, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, it no was a suicide. Allowed, it's not allowed by freelancers anymore. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it seems to me like America was pretty coarse. I mean, it, you know, it's been, it's, we've always been a very violent, coarse, vicious society. And, you know, this is just language. I mean, my son, when he was a kid, uh, he got in trouble for, you know, dropping some kind of bomb at school. And he, he said, he asked me, you know, dad, what makes a word bad? And I was like, words aren't bad. They're just syllables. But if you use the wrong ones at the wrong time, you're going to get into trouble. I'm not saying it makes any sense, but it's just the way society is configured. Wow. He just said, you just explained the Federal Reserve Board. <laughs> <laughs> Why is this worth a dollar? Because we think it is. That's Right. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the same thing. I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is true or not, but the lore is that Esso changed its uh, corporate name to Exxon because when they went into the Chinese market, it Esso apparently means a uh, poo, but, you know, starting with an S in in, in uh, Mandarin Chinese. Really? And and like, uh, you know, but I but you still see some Essos in some places. But uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, it, it's it's a reminder that these things are completely subjective well, they're I mean, arbitrary they're absolutely arbitrary they did i think it's a little to me what was silly was the uh, about the f you know the let's go brandon f joe biden thing was that you know that the network felt any need to cover it up i mean look the first amendment says anything it should say that you have the right to say f joe biden on national television i mean why yeah, not I, I think and i but by turns i mean i, I there's two issues at play we're talking about right now. First of all, the coursing of the, of the culture, which I think is happening and I don't like it. Um, I can't stop it, but I don't, I don't care for it. But the second part is the uh, mainstream media, frankly, protecting and playing interference for the Biden administration. And um, that is what, that's what it looks like. That's certainly the way that uh, right-wing media is covering this. And it seems to be catching on. It's absolutely, it's absolutely true. That always has been, Ted. I mean, for, I can tell you coming up in conservative circles, libertarian circles, that the frustration at dealing with, you know, when you hear um, liberals now complain about Fox News, and you're going, holy Mary, mother of God. You had the New York Times, Washington Post, New York, LA Times, CBS, NBC, ABC, PBS. You had I mean, all sorts of who would, who were clearly dominated by, you know, statist liberals. And it was frustrating as hell. Now it's come out. Now it comes forward and they feel like they have to protect this guy even more. This guy, I'm sorry, the president of the United States, Joe Biden. And it's so frustrating. And I know you have it too, because you're, you're coming from, you're, you're socialist progressive. You're far left. Yeah. And you're, the frustrations you've experienced are the same ones I experienced, which is Joe Biden is actually, he just has a stutter. I'm going, no, he's losing his right. damn mind. He's a really smart guy. No, he's, he's not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it is, I, and I, I do share that. I mean, I guess one. OK, so I try to be as you know fact based as possible. I mean, I don't know the answer to this. Do you know if this NBC sportscaster ever explained herself as to why uh, she did that? Not to my knowledge. OK, because I mean, to me, we, you know, knowing motivation really matters. I mean, she could have misheard. I, I can easily imagine her being mortified because, look, when you're on national television, uh, you know, or or for that matter, local radio, you are 
uh, it, you know, they drill it into you. Don't let any of George Carlin's seven dirty words go right, over the right, air. Right. And um, and so they so I could easily imagine her being like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What do I do? Even though, of course, obviously, it's not like she was saying it. It wasn't her fault. And not to mention back in New York, don't they have a, a six second delay on that broadcast? Isn't there they, someone I think, in the control I mean, room who could have like bleeped that out? If you've seen the video, you know that she I mean, it's hard to hear. It's hard to tell what they're saying, mostly because they're drunk and at an NASCAR event. So there's, you know, there's 17 Bud Lights into the day. Um, and so they're kind of, it's probably what she heard. I think your explanation could be closer to the mark that she just wanted to kind of cover up the fact that they were using one of George Carlin's seven deadly words. And so how do you do that? Well, she's saying way to, you know, let's go, Brandon versus what I, I think there's that explanation, but bigger still is you wouldn't have had having that as kind of a common theme for a group that claims to be, you know, a very you know church oriented and christ oriented and yet they're not afraid to drop the crudest of languages and the crudest of epitaphs at anybody um i'm sorry i mean things have just gotten gone from bad to worse uh, in terms of how we express ourselves and it's frankly lazy i mean now the f-bomb i mean it used to me if you said after you to somebody ted that was it man that was it it was go time now well, it's like true. now it's pretty much like aloha Sometimes it means hello. Sometimes it means goodbye. It's like, it can mean just about, and it talks about the power of words. And, you know, you touched on that earlier. Um, but I, I don't know. It just seems to me that if we're going to have political discourse, we probably shouldn't be using that kind of language. Um, I don't know. You have any thoughts? I mean, what, what, what do you, I mean, because you I, disagreed with this. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess it's like, I think that, you know, what's really, truly obscene is the fact that uh, in my neighborhood in Manhattan, uh, there are mentally ill, uh, impoverished people sleeping on the street um, and people walk right past them uh, and that society has no solution and no discussion about finding a solution to, you know, getting, uh, you know, food into their bellies, uh, water into their mouths. And uh, and shelter over their heads. I mean, that's to me obscene. And to me, the coarsening. I mean, I guess perhaps you could argue that coarse language is part and parcel of a coarse culture that this is from. I mean, I'm I'm not going to say that that's that's not true. It could be true, but it's certainly um, the obscenity of our culture is really in to me unbridled free market capitalism. um, The uh, un- the fact that we have a we don't have a communitarian impulse the fact that we have we let people literally uh, we said you know die because they can't afford health care um these are those that's that's to me what's coarse and you know to me f joe biden almost sounds like a i mean you know it's stupid of course and infantile but it also sounds like you know it's that's frankly the sound at the risk of sounding like Donald Rumsfeld when he was reacting to the looting of the museums in Baghdad. It's that's the sound of freedom. I mean, that's that's Americans saying that, you know, their president, their leader can go to hell. They don't care. And uh, and they can say it gleefully and they can say it on television and be heard. And the president of the United States can, is going to know about it. And I'm not so sure it's even a bad thing. OK, we're going to. Uh... Go break, take a break right now because I want to leave on that point. Ted, you win. <laughs>
Just say. All right. All right. Okay. All right. And we'll be back. Hey, welcome back to DMZ America podcast. I'm Scott Stannis being joined by Ted Wall. Culture wars are raging all across the country, but nowhere more emblematic than in Virginia, of all places. Virginia has the mayor, the governor's race. You have a Loudoun County transgender rapist story. You have kids walking out and demanding security because of that. And you have sex ed books in Fairfax County that are telling middle school kids how to have gay porn comics or, or they're exp- having gay porn comics in these this is in middle nuts. school in middle, middle school. school middle school everyone knows gay porn comics are an elementary school thing only and that you've <laughs> aged out of them by the time you go to middle school yeah comics what are these i mean come on you're not children anymore god almighty this is ted this is nuts i mean we can well let's just stick down the uh, the governor's race it looks like it's a dead heat now between. And it's very important, right? I mean, like I, people are like, well, why do people care about certain races? But yeah, this is viewed. Um, Terry McAuliffe, who he's he's the uh, former governor as well. Yes, he right? is. And so he wants his old job back. Um, and he was also he, a big friend of uh, Bill and Hillary uh, Clinton, uh, as I recall. Uh, he even oh, he was in gave, the administration. Yeah. He and he even gave them money to help them buy their house in Chappaqua. Uh, back in the day. So, you know, you, in Clinton world, you can't get closer than that. Uh, McAuliffe was a big fundraiser. Anyway, the point is, everybody's watching this race to see uh, if it's a, how it portends for the 2022 midterm elections, where Democrats stand. Uh, it's generally viewed, the tea leaf is basically seen as if McAuliffe loses, that it, that that bodes poorly for the Democrats next year. But it, obviously it's too early or too early to tell. Right. In opposition, the Republican Glenn Youngkin, which I just sounds like, doesn't that sound like something from Lil Abner? Like it would be Youngkin. Ah, like, oh, here comes, here comes Gabe Youngkin. <laughs> And the banjo on his knee. Or munchkin, sort of. I mean, they're trying to paint him as a Trumpite. He's kind of trying to tread that or, or, or walk across that 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 he's high not wire a Trumpite. Act. He's been running a very clever campaign. Yeah, he's, he's been. Trying, uh, well, it's clever in the sense that he's not alienating the Trumpites, but he's also right. you know, not embracing them. It's, it's, it's an interesting kind of a wussy way to run a, a frame. Well, he has to, because Virginia's politics are very similar to those here in New York state. Uh, you know, he, the, um, the Washington DC suburbs are very liberal, uh, but the rest of the state is very conservative up in the mountains. So, uh, you know, it's kind of a bifurcated, uh, you know, state and he's got to, he really, you can't win that state without getting uh, a big part, a big segment of both, uh, you got to get some crossover votes or you yeah, will. Look at McAuliffe, and we're not going to focus on the race necessarily, but I just want to say McAuliffe. I mean, I'm sorry, during the debate when they're talking about um, parents, parental parents being involved in their schooling and having what should we do with school board meetings and all that stuff. That, and his response was parents should not determine what their kids are taught. Well, that's hogwash. I mean, that is something that I mean, that's infuriating as a parent. I'm like, screw you. I have every right to say what my kid is and is not taught. Wait, what? I mean, okay, so, all right, look, stipulated. I'm going to give you this, that, uh, you know, the gay porn comics in the middle school in Loudoun County, uh, Democrats are idiots not to have condemned that. And the the school was idiotic to do this. And it's insane 
And uh, I think anyone okay. who has a brain can see that. But look, let's let's not forget, like it wasn't so long ago that the Kansas Board of Education uh, banned the teaching of evolution in public schools throughout the state. Uh, it's not so long ago that uh, you know, there's that there there was a school district in which parents said that uh, Holocaust uh, history should be taught in conjunction with quote unquote yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah, other yeah. side. And, you know, well, there is, I mean, I, I guess you could say there is another side. Uh, it's not correct. And, uh, you know, Holocaust <laughs> denialism, I mean, the Holocaust absolutely did happen uh, just as we understand it. Yes. But the, yes. but the, but the point is that, uh, you know, let me put it, I'm, I'm just going to put it baldly. A lot of parents are idiots. And what, and so I have no problem with them uh, certainly speaking out in public, going to school board meetings and talking and, and being heard. Um, but really in the final analysis, it has to come down to professional curriculum has to come down to professional education. Ted, I'm sorry. Those, the, the, the very things you mentioned, not just the gay porn uh, comics for middle schoolers, but the teaching of evolution, the, 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 the you know, the creationism, all that stuff comes from school boards. It did not come from par- I'm sure parents, there are some parents who are demanding it, but it yeah. did not come from parents. Parents have a right. That's why they're a private. That's why we have a multi-tiered education system. They have an absolute right to determine what their kids are being taught and not taught. And the fact of the matter is most rational parents, rational, emphasis on rational, are going to want their kids to be able to read and write by the time they graduate from high school, hopefully, and giving them the tools to actually function in a literate society. I Wait, wait, functional literate society. Are are they not going to be living in the United States after they graduate? (laughs) Oh, I see what you did. Bump, but um, bump. He'll be here all week, folks. (laughs) Tip your waitress. (laughs) Give him all your money because that's what Ted wants to do with taxes. Anyway, uh, (laughs) oh man, you get that one. Bump, but um. That just you turned the right way. My, my point is that as a parent, I have an absolute right. You and I have talked about parental advice. Parental, I mean, here's it on abortion. I mean, this is an issue that I think is a no-brainer. My kid has his tonsils out or wants to go have, you know, have, be get an aspirin from the high school nurse. They have to ask me first. But if they go and have a, a fairly serious medical procedure that could potentially uh, have serious side effects in, in an abortion, they can do it on their own. That's crazy. Wait, either- Scott, no, that's ridiculous. I mean, look, the kind of kid who needs an abortion is is going to be likely a kid who has conservative parents that she is afraid to confront, um, that she's afraid. I mean, look, if she had cool parents who were, you know, she'd be like, you mom, dad, sorry, I messed up. I got knocked up. Can you take me for an abortion? But like, if she doesn't have cool parents, um, she's she she needs to be able to go and get an abortion on her own. I mean, the people who need abortions more than anything are uh, more than anyone else are young women under the age of 18. And they have they do have apparatus. Most of these laws, ha- most of these states rather have laws in place where the, the um the teenager can go to court and a judge can act as a ward. <laughs> you listen a- to yourself. The teenager can go right. to court. Most adults don't want to go to court. Um, most, I mean, like, <laughs> like really like a 16 year old's like a 16 year old 
is gonna, someone who can't even drive in most states is going to hire an attorney. Right. They can't go drive before because a they... judge and get a and, and get an emergency like ruling that they need an abortion ASAP. Really? They can't drive because they're too young to because they have to have parents to help drive them around. The parental responsibility, parental. Um, well, they should be able to drive. input. I was able to drive when I was 16 without anyone else. Well, and I drove yeah. faster than anyone. I've driven with you. It was the most terrifying. Janine and I still uh, have PTSD because of that. You're both breathing, and I gave you more excitement than you've ever had in your life. (laughs) (laughs) You you should thank me. Okay, so getting back away from abortion, back um, back to school boards and should school boards I mean, should I have a right to, to to go and talk to my school board and have an impact and have an influence? Yeah, absolutely. Ted, Ted professionals have not done a great job. <laughs> well, speaking of the culture wars, though, okay, just parenthetically here, and I, I do want to visit this, get really focus on this main point, but I just want to just stipulate that the way Fox and other uh, conservative media outlets have been characterizing this, quote, war on parents is disingenuous. It's it's really just not true that uh, the Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, ha- has launched like an investigation against parents and, and is, considers them to be domestic terrorists. It is not true that uh, you know school boards are view parents as like the enemy and that there's. I mean, this is being ginned up. I mean, it is no. It there is are not some really true. But let's be but let's be really honest here. There are times when I mean, it's, but you know what? It happens at not just school board meetings, but city council meetings, county commission meetings, water board meetings. When people, you know, you have some people who just get too mad, and they don't express themselves in an adult way, or or they express right. themselves in a threatening way. And right. so, but that's that's a law. There are laws in place to take care of those people. Sure. And if you threaten a an elected official in public or anyone else, that's against arrested. the law. Yeah, you should be immediately arrested now. But if you tell them to go f themselves, of course, that's coarsening the culture. No, and there have been some incidents like that where um where 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 people have been arrested who really should not have been. They were just loud and annoying, you know, or talking too long or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, obviously, one person's loudness is another person's threat. I mean. Politics is the process of, of, of trying to tease these things out. But look, I'm really interested because, look, my mother was a high school teacher for many years. Um, and it, it's an interesting question, right? I mean, obviously, parents do have influence over educational curriculum. They, 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 you know, this is a political process to a large extent. And it's very, I guess the thing is, I'd like it to be a little more filtered. Uh, I'd like this. First of all, I think education should be administered nationally uh, the way it is in all other countries. It should be where it comes from Washington. The educational curriculum is the same, whether you live in uh, Guam, uh, your favorite place, or in Maine. Um, it Love should me some Guam. Make it- it should not make any difference. You shouldn't be taught creationism because you live in Alabama, but not, but then, you know, evolution. If you, if you're in St. Paul, Minnesota, it doesn't make sense, but there should also be a, uh, I think there should be a focus on professionalizing educational curriculum. It should be something that sort of comes from the top from people who are, whose jobs it is to think about these things and to lead. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I don't think educators should be following the public. I think educators should be leading the public where they should go. 
Mm. Well, and I'm I'm always loath to federalize anything because, well, that never that rarely goes well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I would say that you have to have an amalgam. There's, and, and I hate to sound like a wuss here, but I mean, and then we're going to go back and dive back into the culture wars. But I think you can have compromise here where there's parental input, which we have now. It's a system we have now. Parents can go, they can run for school board if they so choose. They can go to school board meetings, but they really are being treated in large part as pariahs. And like you said, because you yell, because you, you, know, you act inappropriately, but that doesn't mean you're going to jump over the, the DS and, you know, uh, assault a member of the school board. But moving on to the Loudoun County transgender um, rapist story. Um, he was convicted uh, as a guy who said he was transgender, uh, went to the school bathroom, raped not one, but two women or girls. Um, well, I guess. Well, OK, I mean, we, we have to define our terms here. I mean, technically, I think we it's interesting, right? We should call her a her or a she because she self-identifies as a woman or in intersex is what uh, technically. So um, uh, gender assignment was male at birth, uh, but she uh, wore um, a skirt. At yeah, school, but clearly she still and she has was using some... the girl's room. And she uh, is, I guess we can say, has been convicted. Uh, she's a convicted rapist. She raped a uh, a woman a girl in a uh, high school bathroom and is now facing charges in a second case that seem credible but obviously this is still america we're innocent until proven guilty uh high school kids yeah. walked out uh in that district and uh, are demanding more security uh in the the bath in the bathrooms which uh uh, trans LGBT uh, issues aside is obviously something that uh, every kid should be entitled to in their school. Um, well, my yeah. bathrooms weren't safe. Yours weren't safe in terms of bullies. I mean, you walked in. I mean, the, the question is, I mean, this kind of plays into, you know, going back to HR two, the North Carolina bath bathroom law from uh, a while back, I guess it may be about eight years ago. That was, um, you know, there's this kind of plays into sort of some, you know, conservative fears, like if we oh not up, some you know, this is their this is it's their big thing but I mean so the question here is okay so this did happen stipulated but it happened once or twice do we make do we change policy do we take away transgender people's rights over to use the bathroom of their choice uh, to use the bathroom that they identify with uh, over you know an outlier over an anomalous, strange one or two cases. I mean, cars crash every day. We don't take them off the road. No, true that. But I think that this is different. And this 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 plays right into the wheelhouse of those who would be very much against the transgender, uh, community transgender movement. Listen, I'm I'm a libertarian on issues like this. If you want to dress as, and identify as something, you know, that's your right. You know, go have you know, go, you know, have fun, you know, go be yourself out. But by terms, society don't expect society to embrace that or, you know, don't go out of your way to condemn it in terms of, you know, you can't do this or you are going to persecute you or you're not going to be able to get a job, get housing, you know, all that stuff. Fine. But this is one of those instances where, you know, the, the fear was you're going to have guys, men, 
who are going to dress as women, pretend to be women and go into the bathrooms. And this clearly happened. I mean, this is, this is, is it anonymous? I don't know. I mean, okay, but I don't know. Okay. So this is again, a practical question. I don't even understand how my first question always was what is there and what was there to ever to stop a cis male from going into a lady's room and raping someone anyway? Oh, that's, that's true. That's perhaps that's true. There's no question about that. But by wearing a dress, you have access to a clearly a, a school bathroom. Um, and where, again, in a school, I mean, the bathroom, look, the, the girls room's not locked. Uh, any boy could go into the girls room, like between classes, you know, you know, like during class when no one's watching and wait in the stall and do the same thing. What's the diff? Well, the big the difference there's, is that, there's no one watching the door to see who gets. Yeah, in. there is. I mean, if a boy walked in and a, uh, an authority figure at the school, a teacher, a counselor, a principal, a vice principal saw the, a boy walk into the girl's bathroom, they would act and jump in and make and say, don't do that. Having someone in a skirt go in there, uh, you know, I'm sure they're very loath to confront that. Uh, so. I've always felt, well, first of all, I mean, school bathrooms are different than regular bathrooms. I mean, why do they have men and women's bathrooms to begin with when it's, as we like to say down here in colloquialism, a one-holer? <laughs> you know, if there's just a one, if there's one toilet, who the hell cares if a man... Well, was, that, was that the case there? No, 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 no. I, I have yeah. to, I don't know this, but I have to imagine that it's a typical kind of, you know, multiple-holer... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think if it's a look, I think if it's a one holer, uh, you know, you just have you you have a lock on the door and you're in there by yourself anyway. That's the safest uh, thing in the world. I mean, look, I was terrified of using the bathroom when I was in elementary school and junior high school. Uh, That was a dangerous place. You go in there. I mean, you know, of course, obviously, kids were always in there smoking. Uh, But, you know, you really could get your you really could get beaten up. It it happened to me a bunch of times. Did it? Yeah, maybe a, a bunch would be an exaggeration because that would make me sound really stupid because I kept going. Um, and so, no, I mean, I certainly never pooed ever at school, ever. That was like, are you kidding me? So, you know, you try to like pee quickly and get in and out. One time when I was in elementary school, uh, a kid, <laughs> we had the big long trough in the boys room. I hate that. Oh, God. And uh, yeah, like a pig. And uh, I, so I, I, I was using that and a dude came behind me. I, I think I was in third grade uh, and he kicked me in the butt really hard while I was using the loo. And for some reason I must've had like my first beer or something. Cause I had like to go like a racehorse. And Wait, I in chased, third grade, you had your first beer I'm joking, but I had to pee like crazy, maybe apple juice. And anyway, it was nuts. I, I, and I turned around and just peed all over him from head to toe and chased him out in the hall, still peeing on him. And <laughs> <laughs> honestly, it was, it was better than a Pulitzer. Uh <laughs> I'll have to do, I'll have to settle for it since I will never win one. Um, but it was, uh, you know, I mean, it's so funny. My mom, my, uh, they called my mom. I got into all this trouble. She came to the school and when she heard what happened, she just couldn't stop laughing. And she was like, good for you. Do it again. <laughs> do it. <inside." laughs> okay. Well, on that note, uh, we're well, well I mean, Oh, okay. Well, all right. I mean, I just look, I, I do think we need to, 
I mean, <laughs> here's the thing. I, before we close out this quit segment, on you peeing on somebody. We no, I'm not going gonna do that. I, all I right, mean, all right, Scott, all right, I got to ask one last question on this on this on this subject. Yes, go ahead. Why? So cultural cultural wars ebb and wane. Why are we? Per, why do you think we are seeing such an eruption right now? Because they're easy. Because we talked earlier about the coarsening of the culture, Ted, which is really more to my point, the, the, the idiot affine of our culture. This is easy to understand. It's you can break it down very simply. Boys peeing with girls. That's just wrong. And I really believe it's that simple. We've 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 idiocracy is well on its way. We're hurtling towards it. And right. And so the coarsening of the culture, coupled with people who are getting upset with things like this, when you mentioned much bigger problems that this country faces, um, you know, I, I think it's it's I think it's that simple. That's uh, I, I think I'm going to give that to you, uh, Scott. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, you, you win the segment with, <laughs> okay. for me anyway. You do. All right. Well, okay. So when we come back, we're going to be talking about a subject near and dear to Ted and mine heart. Um, the culture wars continue. A cartoonist was fired. Have you ever, let me ask you listeners, have you ever <laughs> been out of step with popular sentiment? Well, you would pay the ultimate price. If you were, we'll be back <laughs> right after this. Right, Ted? Yeah. Here we go. So we return from the break to find some breaking news from Virginia again. <laughs> what the hell's happening there, Ted? What's wrong I with those people? I don't know, Scott, but here's what's going on. Uh, Tony Morrison, who I is fortunately not with us anymore to hear this, is the author of a book that is read in many, schooled, uh, many schools called Beloved. I read it, won the Pulitzer Prize in 1987. Uh, anyway, uh, Republican Glenn Youngkin uh, ran an ad on Monday that features a Fairfax County mom named Laura Murphy. She's also a conservative activist who tried to ban Beloved from her local public school. She claimed that her son, a high school senior, got nightmares as a result of reading that book. You know, I get nightmares from reading and seeing all sorts of things, so I can empathize <laughs> with the poor kid. Anyway, Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, uh, trying to get his job back as governor of Virginia, uh, at his rally next to President Biden, uh, said of his Republican opponent, this is his closing message. Glenn Youngkin is promoting banning a book by one of America's most prominent Black authors. Just the fact that he's even that he's even discussing this brings shame here to the Commonwealth of Virginia. Well, I mean, certainly there's shame in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Oh my uh, God, we just spent a whole segment talking about the shame yeah, of Virginia. This seems is to just be Virginia while, while we're recording. Uh, so anyway, now you know too. Uh, so all right, and you probably will know all about it by the time we're done editing and pushing this out. But who knows? Maybe not. It's a you know, it is a very strange um, thing. Anyway, so we are going to we were going to continue to talk about some cultural stuff, and this is totally in Scott. Uh, and I's wheelhouse as yes. editorial cartoonists. Uh, Scott is the editorial cartoonist at the Chicago Tribune, and uh, I am at whowhatwhy.org and spotnicknews.com and uh, syndicated. We're both syndicated. Um, 
So uh, one of our peers, who I have to admit, um, he's Australian, and I don't know that many Australian political cartoonists, just because it's on the other side of the planet. Uh, But uh, this guy, Michael Lunig, was fired from a uh, well-known paper in Australia called The Age. Uh, He did a cartoon uh, that basically includes a screenshot of the dude in Tiananmen Square who stood up in front of the tank. It's an iconic photo. Uh, And next to it, he drew a cartoon of a dude, but he's facing down a tank, but the barrel of the uh, cannon, rather than being a cannon, is a uh, syringe, a vaccine syringe. Uh, Obviously, this is a anti-vax cartoon. Um, And so anyway, Lunig has worked for over five decades at the age, which means he's 326 years old. Uh, he, <laughs> he, uh, he uh, was fired um, and the news. And what I thought, Scott, and I think you'll agree was interesting was the comment for why. Uh, so he was, he gave an interview and he said he was told, he claims that he was told by his editor and there's no reason not to believe him that uh, the cartoon was out of touch with readers and that the oh, no, it's worse than that. That it was not in line with public sentiment. Right. Um, the readers who are a, a largely in favor of of uh, the of uh, the uh, the I think I think he's the prime minister of Victoria Province. Uh, uh, policy said. Sorry, I, this I'm totally like confused. No, this is Adelaide. I'm reading it's, from it's the in article. It's, Very it's conservative, written. by the way. It's part of the part of that country. So here he says, but my job is to, the cartoonist said, but my job is to challenge the status quo. And that has always been the cartoonist's job. I agree with that. Uh, yeah. So anyway, so uh, yeah, I mean, this cartoonists get fired right and left um, for really a variety of reasons. And even though obviously I don't share the anti-vaccine sentiment here, I mean, I've been vaccinated four times, Scott, uh, but you know, I mean, <laughs> doing it, you're going to get the home kit. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for all of the uh, all of the Bill Gates microchips to connect so that ultimately I can start getting radio for free on. Oh, wait, is radio? Free? Wait, wait. <laughs> Why? Oh, no. <laughs> Screwed up again. Um, damn well, you, Bill Gates. The interesting so, part of the story. Here's the part that really frosts my shorts on this. And I mean, this is going to be one of those segments you and I really can't help but agree on. Um, right. He actually posted this to his uh, Instagram account. He clearly cranked it out. It's a really, really, really badly drawn cartoon. It's so badly drawn that he has to, as Ted mentioned, insert the draw the photograph of what he's drawing about with the rep what the metaphor is. Um, it's kind of a stupid idea that equating the guy, the Tiananmen square guy, the tank guy with fighting against back the man and fighting against vaccines. Um, you know, I can, you know, I can certainly understand fighting against vaccines. I under, I understand that. But um, the fact of the matter is his newspaper fired him for something that he didn't do for the newspaper. Is that right? This was yeah, not in. This is an Instagram age. thing. This had nothing to do with the newspaper. He's he did this on the side, just himself. Yeah, he had an idea. He said he wanted to voice it. So he cranked out this drawing. And I mean, it's not obscene. It doesn't. That's totally wrong. Actually, you know what? I'm sorry. It should be actionable. He should be able to sue over this. I mean, the same thing happened to one of our other colleagues, uh, Patrick Chappette. Uh, he was the he was doing cartoons for the uh, online edition of The New York Times. Um, and he was let go. 
uh, because of a cartoon. I'm this laughing. That's a cartoon. He was let go because another cartoonist did a cartoon that caused offense, which, by the way, caused offense after editors at the New York Times reviewed it and published it. Yeah, a number of editors, not just one. But it went through so, a number of editors. They saw it. They reviewed it. They okayed it. The cartoonist gets all the blame. Editors, the editors are still there. They're still and there. They, and they did say, they said nothing. They, 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 they said nothing. They, none of the blame. As but usual. They, but what they did do is not just uh, Patrick, but they also fired, and whose name I can't remember. I hate myself for this, who I uh, drew for their uh, China or Asian edition. Right. And they fired him too. So they fired two cartoonists who had nothing to do with this third cartoonist's work. Right. So who didn't work for them, who did not work for them. He was merely, they just bought it through syndication. Right. Um, yeah. The and, whole thing is a mess. You know, it reminds me a lot of, you know, back, back in the, I guess it was a, uh, in 2004, I did a cartoon, a political cartoon that uh, a lot of people got upset about, um, about Pat Tillman. And I was at the same time doing cartoons for men's uh, men's health magazine about sex and relationships. They fired me from Men's Health over a cartoon that Men's Health never ran. In fact, Men's Health never ran any of my political cartoons. I was doing completely, uh, you know, anodyne sex cartoons for them what and were relationship they, cartoons. What were they, what was the rationale? What did they say to you? What did they say to the public? Well, first of all, they didn't say anything to the public or announce it. They just yanked me. Um, there was an internal discussion uh, involving the top editors. This came from the publisher. The publisher just said, get rid of him. And and several of my editors actually resigned in protest, I think less because they cared about me or my cartoons in particular, and more about the <laughs> principle of it, you know, just the the, the first of all, the, the fact that the publisher was, inter- was interfering in their editorial decision-making process, and then also the fact that, uh, you know, this was, un- comp- this was due to material that was completely unrelated to the publication. And that's the case here, too with Michael Lunig. I mean, it's like, literally, it sounds to me like, as usual, the paper got a bunch of angry emails. And then they got upset. They were like, rather than just write it out and wait a day or two, wait for it to blow over, they freaked out and let the dude go after five decades. Unbelievable. No, I mean, I think part of this, the subtext, maybe they just wanted to get rid of the salary, which is entirely possible. But but let's regard, I mean, so, I mean, and bigger issues like David Chappelle, his Netflix controversy, which is not, in my mind, I'm watching this saying, okay, I'm waiting for the controversial part. And it never comes when he talks about, he's a comedian. He jokes. That's, that's, you know, the job description, right? And so he's, he's, jo- he's joking about a friend of his who grew up and was, and then he was a guy and then he went transgender and he joked about that. He says, and so I said, hey, and so I said, how? How is she doing? And he he changed it and he used the pref, pre- prefix that the person wanted to use and was clearly supportive, but joked about it. And that's getting all sorts of hell for this. I mean, it's 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 unconscionable, Ted. I mean, you can't. And this is a friend. And if you can't joke about your friends, I mean, you and I can joke about each other's shortcomings. And I mean, we we know where we're coming from. Well, um, I wonder if the friend knew that he was going to. Well, I have no idea, but you also have, I mean, you've faced, you've mentioned Pat Tillman, their terror widows. And if anyone wants to look that stuff up, you can, but you're, um, you have some good advice for people if they're ever caught in this kind of situation. And that is, that's true. Don't apologize. 
Yeah. Do not apologize, especially when you're wrong. And uh, I've only, only, Donald Trump learned this, and I think to great effect, I've only apologized once. And man, do I regret it. It was uh, was after the. It was after the it was the day after the November 2004 presidential election and Bush won overwhelmingly over John Kerry, which I just couldn't believe, considering the fact that we were a year and a half into the Iraq war. And that was already going very poorly. And WMDs clearly hadn't turned up and clearly never were going to turn up. And, you know, John Kerry you know, for whatever faults he has, at least was, had not lied us into a war, uh, into a war. Um, Anyway, so I was so angry about it. I did this cartoon uh, that kind of, that stupidly uh, compared, uh, I did this metaphor where it's a classroom and uh, I portrayed George W. Bush as the mainstreamed mentally disabled child who not only was, you know, holding the rest of the class back, but actually was asked to lead the class as the teacher. Um, this was a poorly done cartoon, a poorly yeah, laugh at that just cartoon. a little bit. You can you can laugh at me, uh, but you can laugh at the cartoon. I don't know, whatever. So the point is, um, there were a lot of parents uh, of, of disabled children were understandably uh, very upset about it. And when I heard them, I was like, oh, my God, you know, that was never my intention, which is true. I mean, they were kind of collateral damage. I was mad at Bush and at the American voters. I wasn't, you know, the last thing that uh, parents of, of uh, you know, uh, these parents needed was more any grief from Ted Rawl. So I apologized. Man, as soon as I apologized, the Washington what? Post fi- dropped me. Um, Are you kidding? I lost um, like 20 more papers. Um, it was devastating. And I know that if I, ha- if I had just ridden it out and not apologized or even been defiant, uh, I wouldn't have gotten fired. Well, that's the and that's the MO today. Right. I mean, that's what the Democrats still haven't learned this lesson from the Republicans, which is you screw up. You say something stupid or outrageous. Double down on it. Don't back away. Don't apologize. I mean, do- did Donald Trump ever apologize for anything he ever said? Not to my knowledge. Ever. I'm now, like. I I'm guess gonna look, I'm, gonna, I'm literally going to like Google this right now. Trump apologizes just to see. <laughs> I can't the, wait the, to hear what anything pops up. comes up. I, I think this is going to be the shortest Google response of all time. <laughs> uh, Trump. Yeah, this is great Trump podcasting because a, nothing's more interesting than listening to someone go on the internet. <laughs> not Trump. Trump. Uh, Trump <laughs> offered a vague apology for not choosing the right words throughout his campaign. Hmm. Yeah, wow. Oh, you know, no, wow. no, no. I remember when he did apologize. He apologized for the groping thing. Remember that? No, he didn't. Yeah, he did. He 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 said that uh, he apologized for boasting that as as a star, women let him do whatever he wants. Right, but didn't I said a- it? I was wrong, and I apologize. Trump said in a video on Facebook after the tape circulated. Well, October 8th, 2016. There's one. <laughs> so you found it. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Here's the, I mean, in my view, here's the thing is by apologizing. I, I, I disagree with you, but I agree with you. If that makes, if that could happen, which I think it can here. Um, I think um, it's a mature person who can say, Hey, listen, I screwed up. I'm sorry. Unfortunately, we, you know, we've been focusing on culture wars and this falls right back into this, Ted, 
if you apologize, what happened to you and what happened, and I've apologized for my take and my enthusiastic support of the Iraqi invasion. I was dead ass wrong. Ten years later, I drew a cartoon saying I was wrong. And you saw that. And, and to your credit, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was an excellent uh, principled act of a person with integrity. Right. Well, and most people did, but there was still a large number of people who were like, screw you, Stannis, where were you 10 years ago? And I'm going, well, I just said where I was 10 <laughs> years ago. And I'm, I, I'm apologizing. I'm saying I was wrong. Hopefully I can go forward and learn from this mistake. And, you know, I won't support stupid unfounded wars again, which is, you know, good. Um, it's a good lesson to learn. It's a hard one to learn. And I, like I said, it's cold comfort given the price this country and the world paid for that stupid ass war. My point is by apologizing, you open yourselves up for even more criticism and more. I mean, it's like, I'm apologizing. I'm saying, I'm sorry. I'm saying I was wrong. If we can't, it shouldn't be like this. I mean, you should absolutely, um, you know, be able to look at, we don't, we don't have enough apologies in this, in this society. We should, when people are wrong, they should admit it. They should uh, they should try to fix it if they can, um, and if and society should be forgiving and merciful. Um, and speaking and- of that, I mean, look at I mean, look at what look at the Alec Baldwin story. Uh, there was actually a conservative here in Alabama. He just uh, was named re- within the last year the head of the uh, legal wing of the Alabama Policy Institute, very conservative think tank, and he posted to to. Um, um, Twitter saying, listen, Alec Baldwin has got to be going through hell today. Everyone should just back off. Yeah, well, this is a very politicized story. And it's because Alec Baldwin, uh, you know, made merciless fun very effectively of Don, uh, portraying Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live. Uh, he is a well-known liberal Democratic activist. Um, let's face it, if this had been... Uh, a you know James Woods or Clint Eastwood who are conservatives, uh, and the same thing had happened. I don't think I think you'd have exactly the opposite yeah. lineup. Yeah, I think you'd have uh, you know you'd have left wing media making fun of him. Um, you'd have uh, and you'd have conservatives saying like, "Poor guy, it's uh, you know it's not his fault. He was handed the gun. He didn't know." I mean, it's. There's something a little gross about it. I mean, look, obviously this shouldn't have happened. And it's it's obviously an interesting story and we have a right and we should, uh, you know, do a deep dive into what happened. But, you know, the fact that he pulled that trigger and killed that woman accidentally um, is the cinematographer does not, you know, I mean, it's not a political matter. It just isn't. Well, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And so, but, but it became, it becomes this political matter. It becomes, everything becomes a political matter. And so this is a terrible tragedy. And I have, to, I can't even imagine being Alec Baldwin today with, you know, I'm, there are still some moving parts to the story we don't know about and we'll learn eventually. But I mean, you know, you pointed at what you've, I'm assuming you thought was an empty pistol and all of a sudden two, you know, one person's dead and the other one's badly injured. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's traumatic. And so for, for anyone, and you're right, I think if, if this was a conservative, if, like you said, if it was Clint Eastwood or if it was uh, any other conservative, high profile conservative in Hollywood, you know, what are there three of them? Uh, <laughs> they would have been racked through the coals. See, this is what you get for saying guns. I have to admit, and I can't believe I'm about to say this. Donald Trump Jr. is a 
piece of work I do not like nor respect. But I got to tell you, the T-shirt he's selling today, people don't kill people. Alec Baldwin kills people. (laughs) Guns don't kill people. Guns don't kill people. Alec Baldwin kills people. Uh, I got to admit, I have to hand it to him. That one's actually kind of kind of funny. No, it's it's definitely uh, catches a cultural zeitgeist. And look, um, you know, uh, I'm selling it for 30 bucks, which I think is that's a that's the outrage there. Well, it's also a very poorly designed T-shirt. I'm like, I really wish he'd called, you know, Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, bad graphic design really, really kills people. Um, Actually, it can, you know, yeah. well, poorly designed safety signs, Par- badly designed cars or boats, sure, plate glass windows, yeah, children, sure. poorly, yeah. If their if their graphic design is poor, a child can just implode. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I think it's a, uh, it is definitely a, uh, you know, it's it's a sad it's a sad comment on our times and. And the culture wars rage on, and I suspect we will continue to talk about it. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Facebook. We love Facebook, don't we, Ted? Uh, We do. Oh, I I guess we have to. We have to, because it's listening in the algorithms. And we'll be back. And so welcome now to segment number cinco of today's DMZ America podcast, coming to you from the left where all good things reside. I am Ted Rall. And I'm Scott Stantis. From the right where evil resides. (laughs) Ted's from the left where they want to hurt you and your family. Uh, Well, (laughs) is that really so wrong? So... uh, Obviously, unless you've been uh, under a rock and you are probably aware of the fact that Facebook is under fire, their stock price is down 15% from the high before the revelations called the Facebook Papers uh, came, were published by the Wall Street Journal. And uh, there is a, they are really trying to figure out what to do. Um, and they're sort of at the center of the uh, a million negative things. I mean, apparently in other countries, uh, their inability to and or unwillingness to uh, to take to uh, carefully monitor and curate uh, posts has actually led to uh, fascist movements and authoritarian regimes taking over from more democratic ones. Uh, the, the the company has admitted that's the case that they haven't really even dedicated the resources necessary to uh, monitoring uh, their, their overseas sites, like in Bangladesh and in India and so on. Uh, the, they are actively uh, destroying and censoring uh, conservative speech all over. Uh, it, that's just objectively true. They've uh, used algorithms that uh, have, have censored things. For example, the New York Post Hunter Biden story about the uh, leaked laptop stuff. Yeah, that um, was it. That was a true story, and uh, Facebook uh, algorithms uh, blocked it, and to the point where even today it's it's hard to find it on Facebook. Um, Breitbart also, the right-wing news organization, has been censored by Facebook. And, you know, I think basically uh, they're trying to do a lot of spin, right? Uh, So now the latest is they're trying to figure out how to – Convince the public that they're that Mark Zuckerberg's company is not a force 
for pure evil. Uh, there was an internal memo that came out, ironically, in, yes, wait for it, the Facebook papers, that's, that sort of explains the, the desire of this company to be perceived as good for the public. And here's a quote from an internal memo from something called the Facebook legitimacy team. You can't make these things up. It's called, and it goes like this. Users don't trust us to do the right thing because they believe we prioritize revenue and growth over safety and society. Which is really wrong because they truly only prioritize profits over safety. Continuing, because users don't trust Facebook due to past incidents, they don't believe we have good intentions or motivations when it comes to integrity efforts, the report said, continues. Users don't perceive our content regulation system as legitimate because they don't trust our motivations. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I guess the positive thing is uh, everyone knows that Facebook is full of it. And Facebook knows that everyone knows that Facebook is is full of it, I suppose. And at the core of this, uh, of where Facebook is at, and this is something that the whistleblower uh, went to Congress, said is something that we should be focused on, is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. What's that? What's that? Now, that has been described as the 26 words that created the Internet. And here's what it says. No provider or user of an interactive computer service, in other words, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Now, what this means, in effect, is that Twitter and Facebook uh, avoid being regulated as publishers and therefore are protected from being held liable for any posts that are illegal, child pornography, libel, anything that a user posts, they basically, Facebook argues, look, we don't see it before it goes up. The person, the, the person pushes, pushes send, uh, you know, we try to, if you flag it, we'll try to get to it and take it down, but you can't hold us legally accountable because we're not a publisher. Whereas a publisher is liable for any content that it publishes and pro- produces and then publishes, social media companies are completely separated and indemnified from the content posted by the people onto their platforms. It also continues to allow uh, things like hate speech on their platforms without them being held responsible. here's Here's the specific text of the law. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access or uh, availability of material that provider that the provider or user continues to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. That is a big hole that you can drive a major uh, semi-truck through, and, and they have been. And so the question now is, you know, are they is is the is section 230 going to survive the latest revelations it can't it can't i mean it's the simplest response you know i, I listen i'm going to oppose virtually any kind of regulation on this type of thing i mean if we had regulation we wouldn't have uber we wouldn't have airbnb you know i mean those are been boons to those of us who travel or use you know use tr- transportation um the same holds true what has made these invaluable uh, platforms for us to use Facebook, Twitter, 
you know, all of them, um, is the fact that they had unfettered freedom to say and do what you want. As a First Amendment absolutist, I kind of cringe at the idea of trying to restrain or curtail speech. But by turns, speech has ramifications. If I walk up to you, Ted, and say you're a raging you know, a-hole, you know, then we're probably not going to be friends anymore. There's going to be repercussions to my speech. And what uh, Facebook and the others have uh, somehow ginned up with this legislation is they, there are no repercussions. To, to, you can post hate speech. You can post uh, fabrications and so on. If you remove this, if you strip them of the protections and say that, you know, yes, you are liable for what's on your platform, uh, that changes everything without changing anything. You know, you, you, it, by that, I mean, you don't have the government saying this speech is OK, this speech is not. It's not up to the government to pick winners and losers, especially in speech issues. But it is. Uh, but it does allow for, we should be allowed for, I mean, and I know you've been a victim of this. I certainly have been a victim of being attacked online. Sure. Um, irrationally, that comes with the territory. Irrationally, erroneously. And you have to have the right, there's no, there's no uh, avenue for you to, to, you know, to get them to stop, to have reciprocity, to, to get some, some relief to get some, you know, to be made. And frankly, I mean, frankly, a company um, the size of Facebook last time I checked Scott, and I'm sure that these, this number is bigger. Facebook had uh, twice the market capitalization of general motors and all of its subsidiaries, Uh, general motors and its subsidiaries. When I checked uh, employed between two and 3 million Americans, Facebook was employing at the time perhaps 40 or 50,000. I'm sure it's a little more now. The point is they don't hire enough people to do this. And there's a fundamental contradiction uh, in the law and between the law and the fiction that they're a neutral publish a neutral communications um, platform and a publisher. Because here's the thing, Scott. If you're a neutral, like what is a neutral platform? Something like AT&T, you know, you call somebody, AT&T doesn't know or have any way of knowing or of curating or of monitoring or moderating anything that you have to say to me. There's no way. So they should be indemnified. Uh, If I call you up and make an obscene phone call, that's not AT&T's fault. That's my fault. Now, the thing about Facebook is as long as they're not paying any attention whatsoever and everybody can just post whatever they want, they could say the same thing. But that's not the case. They have algorithms that, as we discussed at the beginning of this segment, uh, uh, downplay uh, right wing conservative speech in favor of more pro-democratic speech, they're publishing. You know, I mean, like when Scott, when you post your cartoon on Facebook, if you include a link back to your own website in order to drive a little traffic back to yourself, uh, their algorithms will push that down so far that even your followers might not see your post. Um, they're, so they're choosing what goes up, where it goes. They're also trying to target and direct uh, content that's based on advertising that's uh, that's toward you. Like, you know, if they think, for example, that you're interested in uh, buying cheese, which I know I'm interested in. I love um, cheese. I love cheese. They will, you know, they, they have cheese-based advertising pushed toward me. So they are picking winners and losers, right? As you would say. Yeah. Um, so that makes them a publisher. That makes them indistinguishable from a newspaper, 
or a, ra- uh, a radio uh, news station. It just, they're the yeah. same. And, and so listen, they, they, they can't have, they've been playing it both ways. And listen, from my, you know, I want to really reiterate this, or at least clarify my views on, as, as someone who's strongly libertarian, I'm not opposed to government. I don't, there are instances where the, the public good is essential as it needs to be, you know, uniformly uh, monitored and or enforced in terms of laws and regulations. I'm not like, let's tear this all down and not have, you know, let's all have little city states. I'm not that guy. So what Ted says makes sense, but I'm also very small C conservative in terms of approaching things like this and how successful they are and the the massive services they provide and things like Google, uh, Facebook, I would say strictly remove the, the protections, which they shouldn't have had in the first place, by the way. I don't think government has the right, again, to make those protections. They, I understand why they did it. They, they were first off Facebook, Google buying uh, lobbyists by the bushel full, and they're going to write the legislation. So, of course, they, they say legislate us and they're going to write the legislation themselves. Yeah, literally. I mean, people don't even understand. They think that's an exaggeration. They think it's going to be, you know, when they hear people say that, like us, they think, well, that means they're going to consult. They're going to be in the room. It's like, no, 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 no. They will actually word for word write the legislation. Yes. And pass it on to Senator Cinnamon and say, you like this? Here's a bag of money. (laughs) She like money. Money, good, fire, bad. Um. So it could be good if there's money. This is true. Um, this is true. Yeah. Anyway, they all do it. I mean, and so, so what, what's, where's, is there a middle ground? Is there, I mean, I'm, I, like I said, I'm loath to legislate just because it's in regulate. It makes serious problems. And I'm loath because I know that Facebook and Google are going to be in the room and probably the only ones in the room. Yeah, and, they will be. And so is that, do but I want then, that? But then what do you do? I mean, you can't have nothing happen. I mean, it's, look, I mean, the thing is, we are basically as close to George Orwell's dystopian vision in 1984 coming true as we ever have been in our lives. I mean, these these uh, you know these companies know everything we do. I mean, you know, probably everybody listening to our to my voice right now has heard has had that experience where you know they they searched for a a brand on the internet. Uh, or they search for a type of thing just out of interest, like you know, uh, Austria. You know, uh, what's the population of Austria? And then the next thing you know, you're looking at your uh, New York Times feed, and then there's it's populated by ads for Air Austria and tourist packages to Austria. And so yeah, they know everything about us. They they are using. I mean, it's crazy. So the power of these companies is so intense. I mean. I think the solution may not be regulatory. I think the solution might be to go back to old-fashioned antitrust law and say, look, some companies are so big that they have to be split up. Um, It didn't really work well with the AT&T breakup in the late 1980s because nothing really happened. I mean, you just ended up with a bunch of, you know, smaller, big companies. And uh, for (laughs) consumers, nothing changed. Prices did down or anything. It didn't increase competition because all it did is make it regional, right? But at the same time, uh, there's all these companies that, uh, but, you know, the Microsoft breakup had some effect, 
But still, tech companies, I think, are just too big. Uh, you know, we Teddy Roosevelt was right. We got to break up these trusts. And these too are trusts. Fail. No, well, let me throw out my solution, which I think is is easier still, and that is just get rid of the protections now in place. The laws you you quote at the beginning of the segment, get rid of those. Just let's start with that. Let's strike those protections and see where things go from there. And, and the civil courts are going to be flooded with a bunch of stuff, and that tends to lead to self regulation and and actually self monitoring because you mentioned that yourself. So that's that's where I would start. Is not with regulations. I'd go the opposite direction and get rid of regulations. So I'm gonna, uh, yeah. I, well, I, I'm gonna go. I think you're right, Scott, on this. Um, uh, with it, with a nit that I just don't believe in self regulation. But I definitely think they're. If you take away that protection, then they are going to have to mind yes. their business. Self regulation driven by self. They're gonna have to regulate their users. Driven by self interest is what's what motivates people. They will have to regulate their users. Welcome back to DMZ America podcast. I'm Scott Stannis coming to you from the crazy right, joined by... From the rational left, I'm Ted <laughs> Rawls. <laughs> yeah, Why are you laughing? I'm Don't laughing. laugh. I'm laughing with you. Oh, okay. But you're not At, laughing. upon. <laughs> Can you laugh upon someone? I think you probably could, yeah, if, you, if, if there's a spittle involved. <laughs> hey, Ted, coming out of Chicago, and I'm the cartoonist for the Chicago Tribune, interesting story. I know that you and I are going to really disagree on this one. Uh, but they're poised to create one of the nation's largest guaranteed basic income programs. About 10,000 families, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot has proposed to the city council that they pay them $500 a month, additionally, just, just for being them. Um, it will, like I said, it'll be the largest program of its kind in the country. This has been something that's been proposed around the world. In fact, Adam Smith, of all people, you know, many two centuries ago, proposed it as a way to help support young people to start and become entrepreneurs and start their own businesses. Um, here's the problem, Ted. First of all, the and of money- course, Andrew, and don't forget, we, we we would be remiss if we didn't mention Andrew Yang. Would we? Yeah, I mean, Andrew Yang uh, popularized the idea of a universal basic income, which... You mean uh, President Yang, or are we talking about Mary <laughs> Which one are we talking here? Oh, uh, Dude Yang. Um, <laughs> uh, so Dude Yang, uh, you know, he, he ran on this in the Democratic primaries and, and made it an issue. It was always considered kind of a weird fringe lefty idea. Uh, but univ- but UBI, universal basic income, was something that he got. It was really his only main issue, and it was uh, he got some traction in uh, you know the, in the primaries for a, a hot second on for this a hot issue. for a very hot second because it was dropped just as quickly. Um, the problem here is that Chicago is basing this on their money, the, the federal money they're getting back for uh, COVID relief, and and. Do you want to go into the tall weeds on this, Ted? Because we can't. Well, so you're taking. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think. Look, I, I can bullet sh- point it. I can bullet point it. Um, I mean, it's, we should say that this is a specific. This is only for Chicago, and like, yes. yeah. So maybe you should explain like where the money's coming from. Yeah. Well, like I said, the money's coming from their. They're going to uh, the federal money that's coming in for COVID relief, and they're going to divert it for this program. Here's the problem, Ted: is it's not just that this money will stop coming by the way. But Chicago itself is bankrupt. I mean, it's more than bankrupt. It is literally hundreds of billions of dollars in debt because of have, the pension. Have they legally dis- declared bankruptcy? Or they just, have not. Just, just they, they just keep kicking the can down the road. They have a, a, a pension obligation now in the hundreds of hundreds of billions. 
Um, and they can't, they've done no, they haven't seriously addressed it. And so that, that debt continues to grow. The obligation continues to grow and it's going to come due. I mean, there's a balloon payment due, I believe at the end of this year and, or the end of 22, uh, 2022. And so, I mean, the city can't afford it. I mean, first and foremost, but let me back up and, and give a little bit of background on, on universal income, guaranteed income too, where you and I may have some, at least we have to address this issue and that is automation. And then people are going to listen and go, what the hell is he talking about? We have driverless cars or, I mean, we, I saw an ad the other day, they have a driverless car now, a car you can literally take your hands off the wheel and everyone's like, oh, that's amazing. Woo. Okay. Well, think about that for a moment. That becomes the prevalent technology. It gets rid of truck drivers, bus drivers, delivery people. I was on a plane recently with, a, not that recently because of COVID, but fairly recently with a guy and his job was to provide and sell heavy equipment for factories. And during the course of the flood, I asked, how has your business changed over the years? And he said, what's weird is you drive up to a factory nowadays and you know the factory's running at 100%, Ted, and it's pitch black. Why is it pitch black? Because they've automated virtually every aspect of the function of that factory. Now, the reason I bring all of this up is automation is killing jobs much faster in this country than immigrants or anything else is or downsizing or, or sending, the, sending the jobs overseas is doing. Automation is killing jobs, which means potentially down the road, entry-level jobs, jobs that used to be able to pay for houses, cars, you know, saving up for your kids' uh, college fund. All that stuff is going away. What do you do with those people? Now, I'm not so naive to think that, you know, the marketplace is uh, you know, tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of jobs, if not millions of jobs are going to go away. And what do you do with those people? Specifically, the Chicago program is idiotic because they can't afford it. It's pegged to money that they don't, that they're not going to have a year from now. But as you know, when you start a program, it's almost impossible to stop it. Yeah, well, that's, Sorry that's true. That. I mean, um, I won't get that right now. <laughs> <laughs> say, say, hi to, say hi to Mayor Lightfoot for me. Um, <laughs> what are you, uh, I mean, so, I mean, and I, I'm going to sort of agree with you here. I mean, in, uh, uh, at least on the specifics, you know, uh, in, in Alaska, they have, something called uh, the the permanent fund dividend, which was basically uh, for an older generation known as the pipeline money that came from the old Oh, Alaska God, yeah, pipeline. of course. And they still pay out between $1,000 and $2,000 per person per year, but the state can't really afford to pay that amount out anymore because uh, oil revenues are way down. The pipeline's not generating nearly as much income. And, but because it's baked into the state's politics and uh, many Alaskans have really come to count on that money. uh, The, the governors there have had to slash spending on all sorts of very important budget priorities in order to keep the checks coming out. So it's certainly true that once you establish something like this, it's very hard to get rid of it. Now, what about on a national level? I mean, I keep thinking that a country this big could really afford to issue a universal basic income to every man, woman, and child just for being American. Because as you pointed out, um, you know, we have lots of increasing automation. Um, there's the, the workforce is shrinking as a result. And uh, people are opting out of the workforce. But look, the, the fewer people are working, uh, j- gross domestic product continues to increase. 
therefore, it stands to reason that at some point we're going to able we're going to be able to have a lot of people sit at home on the sofa, uh, listening to our podcast rather than working. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We just don't want oh, them to starve. A, we just no, want them. We need people to. Well, we need people. We need to pay people to not work. Otherwise, they're going to starve. And even a, a hard-hearted conservative like yourself should be, <laughs> should be able to see that there would be that it wouldn't be good for social st- or political stability to have widespread poverty to have thirty percent of the country sleeping outside. Well, but I also have a real qualm with de-incentivizing people to work, and that's is does this have potential? Because you know, I know, we know. If you're listening to this, you know that the fact of the matter is it's not going to stop at $500 a month. It's going to go up and you're going to have COLA increases and you're going to have other increases. A federal program, frankly, apparently the federal government doesn't care about money. Apparently that's become a thing that we just don't care about. We're, you know, we're keeping the light on in the factory. Apparently we've automated the mint and it just keeps printing money 24 seven. We're fine. <laughs> For now, 10% yeah. of our uh, federal budget goes towards, uh, you know, paying the federal debt. But, you know, that's a couple of hundred billion bucks. Mostly mostly on wars, just want to say. On wars, but on a bunch of other stuff now, too. And we're going to have $3 trillion more on, you know, no, stuff. We on- no, we won't. <laughs> it won't be three. It won't be three. I'm 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 adding the infrastructure bill with the software. I, it was, still won't be three. I think we're going to end up at like, you know, 2.4. Oh, well, okay. That I can. That's nothing. That's nothing. That is absolutely nothing. Listen, I mean, it does sound cold hearted, but I think, too, when you don't have that big of a safety net, it does incentivize people to go out and work, to succeed, to struggle. I mean, that's just, that's been recently proven false. I mean, uh, Republicans have been uh, complaining that uh, people weren't going to work because of the COVID money. And in uh, Southern states and conservative states, governors turned off the spigot of Biden bucks to people who weren't working due to COVID. And they were expecting them to that to get people off their sofas and back to work. And there's literally no appreciable difference between the rate of people returning back to work in states where that happened and states where it didn't. No, I think that's true. But you know what happened there, Ted? And I think this is salient and it's also attitudinal. It's that the people who who got this money said, I can make this money and I don't have to put up with the BS of a boss. And that's, I think, what gave them some freedom. It gave them some freedom. It gave them, and also put the fear of God into the employers. Because look at this. I mean, we were in the middle of, we were driving cross country. So you're in favor of this. I'm not. (laughs) I am not because I. Wait, so you're not in favor of putting the fear of God into rapacious, greedy, uh, chiseling employers who overwork. That that I don't have a problem with, but I but I think that comes with collective bargaining and collective um, uh, power. which isn't going to happen anytime soon with like 7% of the workforce belonging to labor unions. I think you're going to see that number shift again and go back up dramatically. My prediction is in the next two years, you're going to see that number go up double or triple. I, I, I will bet you a very fine steak dinner uh, with at the restaurant of your choice uh, that that is not true. We'll revisit this in uh, 2023. Okay. Uh, I don't, I don't think we will see. I'm going to, here's my bet. The rate of unionization in this country will not increase by even one point over what it is today. Oh boy. Okay. I disagree. I think that the I think that the people who have had that one year off and saw that and actually decompress and say, Hey, my boss is a jag off. I hate this person. Um, I, I think they're going to say, okay, well, how, how, do, how do we fight that? The only way to fight it 
I know it sounds weird coming from the from from the right guy, but the only way to fight it is collectively. The only power workers have is to is to unify and to fight against. Um, yeah, but I mean, look, the thing is, not everything's through work. I mean, the whole point is like, okay, so collective bargaining helps workers, assuming that it that it happens. But what about non-workers? This is that's the issue here. Is if you don't, if you're not lucky en- enough to to get one of the shrinking supply of jobs, then the current labor market basically says you're screwed. You sleep outside. You're homeless. You die of starvation. Uh, a universal basic income is certainly not enough to put a roof over your head. I mean, you know, look in Alaska, it's like sixteen hundred dollars a year. Uh, that's not enough to survive anywhere. No. No. But it. But it can really help people, you know, when their car breaks down unexpectedly or what, or they they suffer a, a medical expense in this savage country that doesn't have decent national health care. Um, you know, it, that it's good to be to have a cushion. I mean, we have so much money to squander on tax cuts for corporations and for wealthy individuals to start stupid wars against countries that have never done anything to us and don't threaten us in the least. I mean, it seems to me like since we have money to throw at everyone else, why can't we give money to, you know, us, the American people? Well, I agree, but I also think that it's unsustainable. And that's where, I mean, you can look at countries like European countries, especially Norwegian countries, but uh, in Scandinavian countries rather, but around there that have the kind of economy you're talking about. The problem is so much money is taken out of that economy that it it, it retards uh innovation it retards growth it, it just um it to my mind capitalism yeah it's ugly it's brutal it's vicious but it's also beautiful and it creates and it builds and the you know the creative destruction i i i love that i love that about this country i love that this country still embraces that um you know i i have a, the thing is my fundamental problem with capitalism is that it starts with a really evil premise, which is that uh, not everyone is entitled to the good things in life. Uh, only people who are born into it, uh, people who inherit from their families. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, like if you think, look at socialism, it starts from the theory that everybody is equal and deserves access to the good things in life. And then, you know, human beings being human beings, they corrupt that principle and, and it gets screwed up. Capitalism starts out from the already corrupt principle that I deserve more than you because I'm me and then gets corrupt from there. Well, no, the, the idea of a meritocracy is what really where I'm coming from, at least I can't speak for all capitalists. I don't even believe in that. What's the, what's How do you the, not believe in that? You make more I mean, money look, than you make more money, Ted, than other cartoonists. You know why? Because you're more talented. You work harder. I'm lucky. I'm, I mean, good, you know, timing. That's part of it. But the other part is you're also, you work your ass off and you've worked hard for the last number of years to achieve this level of success. But I'm going to go even further. Let's just say like, you know, a dude hangs out and just smokes weed all day and doesn't, you know, doesn't work hard. That's not his thing. That's not his bag, but he's a cool dude. He's fun to be around. He's a good <laughs> friend to have. Uh, I'm not even kidding. Is there does is does that dude have less value than I do? I don't think he does. I In think that ca- guy is that guy is like he shouldn't starve to death just because he doesn't have like the desire to work 
you know, 16 hour days. I mean, I like working hard. I mean, you know, it's just like, I feel like we're all member of this. We're all lucky enough to live in this society that has ample ability to provide for every man, woman, and child. Why don't we? Well, I think that, and that's where the question really gets to be very interesting. And that is, do you have an absolute right? Do people have a right to healthcare? It's a big question. And you have to be able to answer. I'm not going to answer it right now. I'm going to tick down some things. Do you have a right to shelter? Do you have a right to food and, and potable water? Education. See, the list just keeps growing. Transportation. <laughs> I, see, my, my theory is that even inside, within a capitalist construct, which, look, I'm violently opposed to, I would overthrow that completely if I could. Um, but even within the construct of capitalism, it seems to me that uh, we should be able to agree that everyone's entitled to the essentials of life. Everyone. And, um, you know, beyond that, like you're not entitled to it, but you're in. And so the question as a a matter of of political debate is what are the essentials of life? Uh, Healthcare is clearly an essential of life. Um, Food and housing and shelter are clearly essentials of life. Um, Now, education, I would argue, is essential within our system, but I could certainly understand people arguing that it's not necessary, that you can certainly survive or subsist without it. I think in a capitalist system demands it, frankly. Capitalism demands literacy. Right. And other skills as well. Um, You know, the ability to sit still in a chair and do what you're told, which is what the education system primarily teaches you. Well, I think it's a terrible system, by the way. Um, Don't get me wrong. (laughs) Yeah, well, you and I have not been served well by it in either. either Well, we can read or write and we both, you know, own a car. So, you know. True. That is that is true. (laughs) That is true. And, you know, some of us know how to drive properly. Oh, God. Oh, you know how to drive properly. If I can, you're, you're a good driver. I wouldn't say that. I'm a bore. I'm a terrible. I'm no, I'm, I'm a very cautious driver. And I just want to say anyone listening to this podcast, listening to this broadcast, if Ted Roll says, I'll drive, don't get in the car. Oh, you'll be fine. You know, it'll be, it'll be the most interesting <laughs> thing that happened to you in the previous hour. That part, I guarantee you. <laughs> Maybe true. Well, we're about ready to wrap things up here. This has been another delight, Ted. Thanks for thanks for being here. Thank you, Scott. It's so fun. I really do enjoy your company. I love this guy a lot. I just can't tell Likewise. you. Likewise. Um, but uh, where can we see Ted Rawls stuff? Where if I want all things Ted, where can I go? All things Ted are at Rawl.com, R-A-L-L.com. You can also check out my cartoons on Saturdays at whowhatwhy.org. My cartoons Tuesdays and Thursdays at sputniknews.com. And you can also uh, go to counterpoint.com, which is an email newsletter that comes in free to your inbox and contains the work of such cartoonists as Scott Stantis (gasps) of the Chicago Tribune and Ted Rawl and many other (gasps) of our fine colleagues. Yes. And so you can find my work there, as Ted just said, but you can also go to gocomics.com slash prickly city, which is my comic strip, or gocomics.com slash Scott Stantis, all one word, which is my editorial cartoons. You can also go to the Chicago Tribune.com and go to the opinion section and see a gallery of my Chicago cartoons. So all of that being said, we are so grateful. I'm grateful for the friendship with Ted. I'm grateful for you for listening. And we'll be back again real soon and we'll drop another pod on you. Right, Ted? Yes, we will. Happy Halloween, everyone. <laughs>